Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609. 3711. All right, this is episode 18 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Thursday, November 4th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Now, we had a, um, had a situation earlier today. At approximately 11.25 Eastern, about 35 minutes before we were scheduled to go live, the power went out in my neighborhood in Little Rock, Arkansas. And it just recently came back on. Uh, we, we were praying that it would, but we couldn't just say, oh, well, we're not going to do a live stream podcast today because the power went out. No, no. There's too much going on. This is something we're dedicated to. By the way, thank you to everybody checking in here, everybody who was uh, so patient, the people checking in to listen live an hour and 39 minutes after we were supposed to start live, uh, I see uh, Ray Mathburn and Justin S. Thanks for, for your kind comments. Uh, Bluebird, uh, Be Coolis, uh, Going Live 08, uh, Zip Fletch. A lot of people checking in. We appreciate you checking in since uh, we were not able to do it live. Obviously, we're going to have to buy a, uh, a, a generator. All right. Now, that having been said, that having been said, uh, let's. In the words of the uh, the great Monty Python, get on with it, get on with it. We have, thanks to C-SPAN, the complete exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci today in which Senator Dr. Paul handed Anthony Fauci's gluteus maximus to him. We want to get right into that. And then a little bit later, we'll talk about what uh, the Biden regime Biden's handlers are going to try to do to all of us through OSHA. But here we go with Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci. I don't expect you today to admit that you approved of NIH funding for gain-of-function research in Wuhan, but your repeated denials have worn thin, and a majority of Americans, frankly, don't believe you. Even the NIH now admits that EcoHealth Alliance did perform experiments in Wuhan that created viruses not found in nature that actually did gain in lethality. The facts are clear. The NIH did fund gain-of-function research in Wuhan, despite your protestations. You can deny it all you want, but even the Chinese authors of the paper, in their paper, admit that viruses not found in nature were created, and yes, they gained in infectivity. Your persistent denials, though, are not simply a stain on your reputation, but are a clear and present danger to the country and to the world. As Professor Kevin Esfelt of MIT has written, Gain-of-function research 
looks like a gamble that civilization can't afford to risk. And yet here we are again with you steadfast in your denials. Why does it matter? Because gain-of-function research with laboratory-created viruses not found in nature could cause a pandemic even worse the next time. We're suffering today from one that has a mortality of approximately 1%. They're experimenting with viruses that have mortalities of between 15 and 50%. Yes, our civilization could be at risk from one of these viruses. Experiments that combine unknown viruses with known pandemic-causing viruses are incredibly risky. Experiments that combine unknown viruses with coronaviruses that have as much as 50% mortality could endanger civilization as we know it. And here you sit, unwilling to accept any responsibility for the current pandemic and unwilling to take any steps to prevent gain-of-function research from possibly unleashing an even more deadly virus. You mislead the public by saying that the published viruses could not be COVID. Well, exactly no one is alleging that. No one is alleging that the published viruses by the Chinese are COVID. What we are saying is that this was risky type of research, gain-of-function research. It was risky to share this with the, Ch with the Chinese and that COVID may have been created from a not-yet-revealed virus. We don't anticipate the Chinese are going to reveal the virus if it came from their lab. You know that, but you continue to mislead. You continue to support NIH money going to Wuhan. You continue to say you trust the Chinese scientist. You appear to have learned nothing from this pandemic. Will you today finally take some responsibility for funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. Gain, first of all, gain of function is a very nebulous term. We have spent, not us, but outside bodies, a considerable amount of effort to give a more precise definition to the type of research that is of concern that might lead to a dangerous situation. You are aware of that. That is called P3CO. We're aware that you deleted gain of function okay. from the NIH well, website. Well, I can get back to that in a moment if we have time, but let's get back to the operating framework and guide rails of which we operate under. And you have ignored them. The guidelines are very, very clear that you have to be dealing with a pathogen that clearly is shown and very likely to be highly transmissible in an uncontrollable way in humans and to have a high degree of morbidity and mortality and that you do experiments to enhance that, hence the word E-P-P-P, enhanced pathogens of potemic, potential So when EcoHealth Alliance took the virus, well, SHC014, and combined it with WIV1 and caused a recombinant virus that doesn't exist in nature and it made mice sicker, mice that had humanized cells, you're saying that that's not gain-of-function research? According to the framework and guidelines... So what you're doing P3, is defining away gain-of-function. No. You're simply saying it doesn't exist because you changed the definition on the NIH website. This is terrible, and you're, you're completely trying to escape right. the idea that we should do something about trying to prevent a pandemic from leaking from a lab. There's, the preponderance of evidence now points towards this coming from the lab, and what you've done is changed the definition right. on your website to try to cover your ass, basically. 
That's what you've done. You've changed the website to try to have a new definition that doesn't include the risky research that's going on. Until you admit that it's risky, we're not going to get anywhere. You have to admit that this research was risky. The NIH has now rebuked them. Your own agency has rebuked them. Homeboy's on fire. I, I don't know if I've ever played five minutes of audio without, without interrupting, but I just I feel like one of those uh, song reaction guys on YouTube. There was no place to stop. Rand Paul is crushing Anthony Fauci. And in a sane world, Fauci would be in jail by now. But That's, the thing is, is you're still unwilling to admit that they gained in function when they say they became sicker. They gained in right. lethality. It's a right. new virus. That's not gain of function? According to the definition that is currently <laughs> operable, you know, Senator, the new let's one. make it clear for the people who are listening. The current definition was done over a two to three year period by outside bodies, including the NSABB, two conferences by the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine on December 2014, March 2016. We commissioned external risk benefit assessment and then on January of 2017, the Office of Science and Technology Policy of the White House issued the current policy. And coincidentally, I, I coincidentally have not changed the definition any appeared definition. on the same day the NIH said that, yes, there was a gain of function in Wuhan, the same day the definition appeared, the new definition, to try to define away what's going on in Wuhan. Until you accept it, until you expect, accept responsibility, we're not going to get anywhere right. close to trying to prevent another lab leak of this dangerous sort of experiment. You won't admit well, that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. Thank you, Senator Paul. And I would like um, to give the time to Dr. Fauci. Yeah, well, there were so many things that are egregious misrepresentation here. Here, uh, Madam Chair, that I, I don't think I'd be able to refute all of them, but just a couple of them for the listens to hear for. You have said that I am unwilling to take any responsibility for the current pandemic. I have no responsibility for the current pandemic. Oh! The current pandemic. Okay? Number two, you said the overwhelming amount of evidence indicates that's a lab leak. I believe most card-carrying viral phylogenists and molecular virologists would disagree with you that it's much more likely, even though we leave open all possibilities, it's much more likely that this was a natural occurrence. Third, you say we We've can- We've tested 80,000 animals and no animals Senator have been Paul, found with COVID. Senator Paul, the time is set for- And third, you made a statement just a moment ago that's completely incorrect, where you say we continue to support research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You proved it in August of last year. No, no, your statement says, quote, I wrote it down as you were writing. You continue to support research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You were in committee a month ago and said you still trust the Chinese scientists and you still support the research over there. You said it a month ago Senator in committee. Senator Paul, I have allowed Dr. Fauci to respond. You've had your time. I'm going to give him He's going to be dishonest. Minute. He ought to be challenged. S Senator Paul, Hello. you allow Dr. Fauci to respond after you've given accusations like that. Dr. Fauci. Well, I don't have any more to say except to say that, as usual, and I've, I have a great deal of respect for this body of the Senate, and it makes me very uncomfortable.
to have to say something, but he is egregiously incorrect in what he says. Thank you. Thank History you. will figure that out on its own. So we will turn to Senator Hassan. Thank you. Yeah, but we're not going to turn to Senator Hassan. That's enough of that. That's enough of that. I mean, the, the only thing Fauci has is, well, I, I disagree with you and you're incorrect. No. No. No, he's not incorrect. He's right. You know he's right. But you got a lot of stake, don't you, Fauci? You got a lot at stake. Joe Biden officially released his unconstitutional vaccine mandate today. Remember in December what Joe Biden promised. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. Remember that when he promised the uh, vaccine wouldn't be mandatory? Remember that? So, this is interesting. This is interesting. Uh, I guess I should have turned that off. Yeah, I always forget. I always forget to turn the uh, the ringer off on the phone. I'm such a knucklehead. Uh, my listeners in 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 New York might even call me a schmagegi. I I stand uh, guilty as charged. So the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's outfit, challenges Biden administration vaccine mandate. Daily Wire filed a lawsuit against the federal government today over Joe Biden's order mandating that large employers must require their employees be vaccinated against COVID-19 or submit to regular testing. The... Dillon Law Group Incorporated and Alliance Defending Freedom filed a legal challenge on behalf of the Daily Wire in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. The mandate requires all private employers of 100 or more employees to force unvaccinated employees to receive a COVID-19 vaccine, be subject to weekly testing, or lose their job. Attorneys for the Daily Wire will also file an emergency motion to stay the mandate. Daily Wire co-founder and co-CEO Jeremy Boring said the Daily Wire will not comply with President Biden's tyrannical vaccine mandate and we're suing the Biden administration to put a stop to their gross overreach. President Biden, the federal government, social media, and the establishment media have conspired to rob Americans of their freedoms in the name of public health. They have broken faith with the American people through conflicting messaging, false information, and by suppressing data and perspectives with which they disagree. The lawsuit alleges that the Biden administration lacks constitutional and statutory authority to issue the employer mandate and that the mandate failed to meet the requirements for issuing a rule taking effect immediately without the normal process of considering public comments. Dillon Law Group's partner, Harmeet K. Dillon, said the federal government lacks the legal authority to compel private employers to play the role of vaccine or COVID police, 
lack the police power to force private employees to undergo medical treatment, and may not ignore constitutional limits on its ability to regulate every aspect of our lives. She continued, The Biden administration's attempt to impose this unprecedented and unlawful federal medical mandate on the U.S. workforce without considering the public's views is arbitrary, capricious, unsupported by the evidence, and would produce a willfully ignorant rule. The lawsuit takes no position on any COVID-19 vaccine or whether any person should make the personal decision to receive it or not. The Daily Wire has employees who have received a COVID vaccine and those who have not. Alliance for Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Ryan Bangert said, the Biden administration's decision to mandate vaccines through an OSHA rule is unlawful and compels businesses like the Daily Wire to intrude on their employees' personal health decisions. The government has no authority to unilaterally declare that employees are workplace hazards or to compel employers to become vaccine commissars, and we're asking the Sixth Circuit to put a stop to it immediately. In a press release, the Daily Wire said, as the motion for stay filed with the Sixth Circuit will argue, the federal government has no power under the Constitution to force half the U.S. private sector workforce, 80 million workers or more, to be vaccinated against their will or endure repeated medical testing as a condition of simply earning a living, nor is OSHA empowered to compel employers to enforce this government dictate or face punishing fines. Yet the OSHA mandate would do just that. Even if it had such power, Congress did not delegate it to OSHA which is overtly trying to ram this unconstitutional, extra-statutory, and unprecedented mandate into immediate effect through emergency rulemaking to avoid public comment in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Forced to invade employees' medical choices or histories and their religious beliefs in connection with a condition of employment, the Daily Wire risks being trapped between its obligations under the mandate and the prohibitions against discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities, Disabilities Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as well as the burdens of law regulating the possession of private information. The mandate is unconstitutional because the Constitution does not grant Congress, much less OSHA, the general police powers needed to mandate vaccination and virus testing as a condition of private employment or to deputize employers to enforce that mandate on its behalf. So there you go. There you go. I'll be posting that on my Facebook page here in a little bit. All right, now, that having been said, that having been said, I have been asked by the great Dan Bongino to come on his radio show tomorrow at 1.05 p.m. Eastern Time, and I certainly am looking forward to that. I'm certainly looking forward to that. Again, here's a guy who put his money where his mouth is, and I'm certainly not used to that in the 
radio business. I'm certainly not used to that in the radio business. And he had some comments. He had some comments about the ongoing situation. Dan Bongino was back on live with his um, radio show yesterday. And let's, uh, let's hear what he had to say. So there's a guy over at Media Eye. This, uh, he's, you know, kind of a clown, but whatever. Um, Aiden McLaughlin. So he just emailed me. Here's what's going on. You may be asking what's going on with your, uh, with you and Cumulus with their vaccine mandate. So apparently someone at Cumulus must be getting desperate. So Aiden McLaughlin, guys, a leftist. He pretends to be like a down-the-line centrist, but he's really a leftist. He just emailed me, which I'll respond to him only um, on the air. I, won't, I don't respond to him on email because he's a clown. I don't want to give him any clicks. Listen to this. This just goes to show you people on the inside are, uh, are nervous about this whole thing. He says, sources tell media, he's reaching out to me for comment over my vaccine mandate, uh, my objection to the vaccine mandate, cumulus. I'm reading this live, it just came in. Sources tell media that the protests, given the timing, uh, is not about mandates, but about getting out of your contract with Cumulus. <laughs> what does that sound like to you there, Joe? Maybe someone uh, inside Cumulus may, may be leaking some information to make it seem like, gosh, if we discredit Dan Bongino. Yes, it's, it's, it's about getting, there's an easy way to get out of the contract, which um, Aiden McLaughlin doesn't know. Um, I haven't shared that, but if Cumulus wants to continue to leak, I can get out of the contract for myself quite easily. So if it was about getting out of the contract, I would exercise that option. Um, Aiden doesn't appear to know that because Aiden is a stooge. For, yeah, thank you. Joe, that's at least a double. So nice try, um, insider Cumulus there. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Second, this part, um, this part he's right about. And this is what I wanted to talk to you about today. It's very serious. Uh, he's, he's right about this. He says, some industry sources have said you have lost support from fellow conservative radio hosts over the process, over the, uh, over the protests. Please let me know. Folks, I want to share something with you, a very serious note. That's, um, you know, today was too important of a day to open up the show with what's going on with this vaccine mandate, cumulus, and my continued fight with them. But uh, like I said the other day, it's been wearing me down, but not wearing me out. Cumulus is just insisting on that they, they were right. They fired people because of this vaccine thing, fired them in brutal fashion. The emails are grotesque. They're refusing to back down. And here's what's going on behind the scenes. And um, I'm sorry to have to share this with you. But a lot of people you think are conservative in the conservative movement. I hate to have to do this. They're really a bunch of frauds. I mean it. I could have used their support here. This vaccine mandate is about one thing and one thing only to me. It's always been about the fight for bodily sovereignty and people at Cumulus who know how long I've been fighting them on this know exactly what this is about. If we lose this fight and we let people get fired and we do nothing about it and we stand there and watch and we are part of the problem. A little bit of air support from other people in this space would have made this fight more strategically uh, advantageous, let's just say. But the silence from other conservatives in this space is deafening. 
Now, the reason I, quote, lost support from some conservatives in this space is because a lot of them have a gravy train. They don't want to give up and they're not willing to risk over anything. They just want me to shut up so that they don't have to call out the company or they don't have to call out their company either. I haven't told you about this, what was going on behind the scenes. But I reached out to one of them the other day, a couple other guys as well. And their whole attitude is, oh, not my business, man. As long as my gravy train is good. I'm on my own. Oh, I should say on my own. Steve Dace. Thank you to Steve Dace for speaking out. That's pretty much it. It's been one of the great disappointments of my career. People I once believed in are just watching me dangle out here on my own. So I have no doubt what Aiden wrote there is true. There are other conservative radio hosts who just want this to go away. Just shut up. We'll cash our checks, Dan. Life is good. It's not. One more thing. One of the people, uh, one of the, uh, I'm not going to say who, but you probably figure that out. I'm not on that spot alone. There are other people in that 12 o'clock spot. One of the companies that represents one of those other shows has not only not supported me at all, although despite being a conservative radio brand, but they have actively undermined my effort to fight these vaccine mandates by reaching out to program directors across the country and recommending that they dump my show and replace it with their show. Think about that for a minute. You've been selling to your audience for years that you're a conservative radio company. And the minute an actual conservative stands up for something at great expense to himself, like a vulture and a parasite, you move right in and start sending emails and calling program directors saying, hey, our guys are our guys are good corporate lackeys. They won't give you any problems. Get rid of that Bongino guy. He's big trouble. That's happening right now. Like I said, it's wearing me, uh, wearing me down. But it's not wearing me out. So there's my comment, um, Aiden. Print that. Thanks for tuning in. All right, that's Dan Bongino. And, of course, uh, he's talking about, he's got to be talking about uh, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton over at uh, Premier, which is owned by iHeart, which is, you know, iHeart, well, they'll always be clear channel to me. I, I have a hard time calling them iHeart. But anyway, they and Cumulus are the two big radio companies in America. And so, obviously, iHeart's uh, distribution company, Premier, sees an opportunity here with Dan Bongino being off the air for a week and a half. They're reaching out to stations that carry Bongino and saying, hey, why don't you just dump this guy and carry our guys, Clay and Buck, because they're not going to give anybody any grief over the vaccine mandate. And Bongino's like, eh, I'm sorry, I thought we were all conservatives here. I thought we we're all conservatives here. So, you know, he's sticking up for people like me. I'm sticking up for him. Simple as that. 
And I've been asked to come on Dan Bongino's show to start the second hour of his show tomorrow. So a lot of times lately I've been doing a long show going past an hour and a half. Tomorrow we'll keep the show down to an hour so I can be live with Dan Bongino and his 300 radio stations tomorrow at the beginning of hour two, 105 Eastern, 1205 Central. And I appreciate the opportunity. And I appreciate, again, Dan Bongino putting his money where his mouth is and standing up for those of us who were fired. You know, and I went off yesterday on yesterday's episode, uh, episode 17, which, which ran, which we did live at noon Eastern yesterday, Wednesday, November 3rd. I went off on this uh, this knucklehead uh, that he was he was quoting over there. At, I can't even remember what the uh, what the news website is anymore. But I went off on it yesterday. You can check out episode seventeen and the last twenty minutes. I dissected. I dissected what. Uh, what they were trying to do to him. No, no, this is important. This is important. I'm having a, a, a mental lapse here for a second, but I, I want I want to name names again. Because I, I checked the guy out on LinkedIn, and the guy who was writing about Bongino, he'd never been on the radio himself. So what did he know? Yeah, Colby Hall. Colby Hall, what is he doing? Digital media executive. Colby Hall over at uh, Mediaite. That's it, Mediaite. Okay, I wanted to make sure I got it right. I don't want to slam the uh, uh, the wrong place. Okay, now, that having been said, the great Daniel Horowitz over the blaze said... <clears throat> Republicans have a mandate like never before. All 27 governors, all 27, listen, all 27 Republican governors should meet in person and resolve to nullify this rule, criminalize its enforcement, subject any business to workplace injury liability, which was OSHA's original position, and pay the federal fines of any business. And then Brother Daniel Horowitz at the blaze asked the question, are elections a means or just an ends? And that's a very important question to ask. It is. He says the political pendulum will continue swinging back and forth every four to six years, but the policies will inexorably march leftward if we continue doing nothing to convert election victories into enduring policy outcomes. Anyone asking how Tuesday night's stunning election results will affect the race for control of Congress in a year from now is pondering the wrong question. Can't stress this strongly enough. The more salient question is how the GOP gubernatorial 
and state legislative victories will bear on other GOP governors and legislatures in states where they already command strong majorities right now. We can't wait until January 2023 or January 2025 for relief from COVID fascism, genocidal COVID treatment policies, denial of health care freedom, open borders, irresponsible refugee resettlement, rampant crime, and a return to gender sanity and traditional American values in our society and schools. The lesson from this week is that if Republicans can win in Virginia and New Jersey because of some of the aforementioned issues, that means they have no excuse not to immediately act upon all of these issues without any diffidence, equivocation, or compromise in all of the states where they already enjoy long-term control. All right? Although the issue of education particularly school board decisions on transgenderism in Loudoun County and critical race theory across the state loomed large in Virginia. It wasn't any single issue that drove what was clearly a national wave. Republicans won races in places like Seattle and Long Island. And a truck driver who spent less than $200 on his campaign defeated the most powerful man in the New Jersey legislature with a little-known candidate, while a little-known candidate came within inches of unseating Governor Phil Murphy. Republicans flipped a Biden plus-14 legislative seat in Texas. A number of Soros prosecutor candidates were defeated throughout the country. And five anti-police incumbents were swept out of the Minneapolis City Council. This was a clear rebellion by the voters against all of the chaos and tyranny created by the confluence of numerous odious policies foisted upon us by the elites. But the question is, what Republicans should do with the mandate clearly handed them to the clearly handed to them by the voters? The definition of insanity is repeating the same cycle of failed policies and strategies over and over again and expecting a different result. We were in this very position in November 2009 when Republicans won big against Obama's radicalism in what became a harbinger for the Tea Party wave a year later. Then we were told the House was not enough because they needed the Senate. Then they needed the White House. Then in 2016, they won the federal trifecta. House, Senate, White House. Not only did they do nothing with the power, but COVID fascism, which essentially remade our constitutional way of life, began on the Republicans' watch. Today's level of tyranny, spending, dependency, inflation, crime, illegal immigration, and social rot gut makes 2009 look like the Reagan era. As such, anyone who thinks Republicans winning a narrow rhino victory, pardon me, a narrow rhino majority in Washington, D.C. next year is going to make a difference, was born yesterday, or somehow doesn't feel the pain of the average American. Besides, we can't wait another day, much less 
wait until January 2023 to save our children from from an imminent injection into their bodies, to save jobs and careers from being destroyed, and to save lives from a virus likely created by the very entities blocking life-saving treatment against it. We need action now. Do you hear that? We can't wait to save lives from a virus likely created by the very entities blocking life-saving treatment against it. We need action now. Despite losing the 2020 elections, Republicans already dominate in many state governments over and beyond their historical baseline, and this is even before what will likely be a wave election a year from now. Republicans will now control 28 governorships, 31 states with both chambers, 23 trifectas, and 19 trifectas with supermajorities in both houses. COVID fascism, in particular, began with state governments. It can and must end with those same state governments. We don't need control of the federal government to change these policies in the states, nor can we afford to wait, and nor will it help anyway. Yet even in most deep red states, we have Republican governors and legislative leaders who either support the dangerous vaccines and other aspects of their COVID religion or are somehow too scared to finally take a stand against the biomedical security establishment and the powerful special interests representing this Leviathan. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee has wavered over signing a compromise bill against vaccine mandates overwhelmingly passed out of the legislatures And Tennessee is the only state that even passed such a bill out of all the trifectas. We can't get governors in states like Idaho and Alabama to combat the mandates. And even in Iowa, where Governor Kim Reynolds has generally been more level-headed on this issue, she continues to push the already debunked premise that the shots are safe and the best defense against the virus. Ironically, with some of the cultural issues that Glenn Youngkin successfully leaned heavily into while campaigning in a blue state, too many Republicans in deep red states are downright on the other side. For example, we couldn't even get governors like Asa Hutchinson in much more socially conservative Arkansas to ban chemical castration of minors. Yeah, he was horrible. But again, he was doing the bidding of Walmart and the Chamber of Commerce. Asa Hutchinson, who puts a scripture verse on his Facebook every Sunday, parading his professed Christianity, refused to sign a law, actually vetoed a law, that would have protected minor children from sterilization, from chemical castration. Why? Because that's what Walmart and the Arkansas Chamber of Commerce wanted. That's why. But I digress. Back to uh, Daniel Horowitz. Fantastic article, GOP wins big, now what? At the blaze. He says, while Glenn Youngkin ran hard against the Soros de-incarceration agenda and parole boards releasing criminals, Many Southern governors continue to push that agenda and somehow use a perverted view of the Bible to justify it. 
Thus, we must finally realize this election cycle that we have won nothing with an election. We have merely secured possession of the ball with zero points on our side of the scoreboard after the other side already ran up the score to near insurmountable margins. Now is the time to make the plays, the big plays. On Tuesday night, Republicans demonstrated that with the right message, they can make inroads even into blue-leaning areas on the East Coast. But what was also clear is that the country-class voters are even more frantically anti-globalist and anti-elitist than they ever were before. Glenn Youngkin blew out even Trump's historically strong showing in rural southwest Virginia while picking up lost suburban voters in Loudoun County, the Richmond suburbs, even the Tidewater area. Norfolk, Portsmouth, Newport News, Chesapeake, Virginia Bay, pardon me, Virginia Beach, Hampton, that whole area. You know what looks a lot like southwestern Virginia? Places like Idaho, Wyoming, Oklahoma, Alabama, Tennessee. The question all voters fed up with the unprecedented tyranny from the federal government should be asking is this. If Glenn Youngkin can win in Virginia, why are deep red state governors and legislatures not immediately convening to counter every one of these policies emanating from the Biden administration? He says, as I speak with legislators in supermajority GOP states, all I hear is a defeatist attitude of, this is the best we can do with the leadership we have. But why? If our message now resonates even in New Jersey, then most certainly we can push a no-holds-barred agenda against this administration and nullify every one of the unlawful policies without any need to work with Democrats. As always... The GOP candidate victory speeches were full of optimism and broad platitudes on apple pie, American dream bromides, and general tropes about freedom and liberty. But when it comes to the specific policy outcomes that actually matter, the Democrats continue to succeed largely because Republicans agree with the foundational premise of most of those policies while opposing a few of the most extreme manifestations of it. It's time for voters to demand immediate policy changes in any state where Republicans control government, including but not limited to the following. First of all, a complete cessation of all so-called criminal justice reform, the de-incarceration agenda that most GOP governors have bought into. It's time to get tough on crime, again, by increasing sentences for violent offenders and limiting bail. Secondly, a big theme of the Virginia campaigns was safe and secure communities. Republicans must promise to block refugee resettlement in their respective states as thousands of unvetted Afghans are being dumped into our communities with no regard for the safety and culture of those areas. Thirdly, an immediate special session on COVID in which all the funding and policies of COVID are shifted away from the failed vaccines and social control and toward early treatment, along with a complete ban on all mandates. No exceptions. Fourthly, an immediate prohibition on castration of minors 
men and female sports, men and female bathrooms, as well as a clear protection against any institution from having to perform unethical and medically damaging transgender so-called surgeries. Fifth, a categorical ban on all critical race theory in all states and replacing it with a curriculum built upon the 1776 curriculum. Last but not least, every Republican state should, within the same week, pass an interposition bill which empowers the legislature to ban the enforcement of any federal policies that violate the Constitution the same way New York Democrats made it a felony to enforce immigration law or work with ICE during the Trump administration. Brother Horowitz over at The Blaze concludes, during the 1993 Super Bowl, Dallas Cowboys defensive tackle Leon Lett famously celebrated before he got the ball into the end zone, only to have the ball stripped away from him by Buffalo Bills wide receiver Don Beebe. In that case, the Cowboys already had a massive lead so the Leon Lett blunder was merely symbolic. But in our case, we are the ones losing big time and cannot afford to showboat before we get the ball into the end zone. That's a great Daniel Horowitz over the blaze. And uh, the article is entitled, GOP Wins Big, Now What? It'll be on my Facebook page a little bit later. You know... When I was doing a local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas, there was the state senator, a guy named Gary Stubblefield, who um, tried to get a bill passed. Tried to get a bill passed that would have enacted criminal penalties of any Arkansas law enforcement that attempted to cooperate with federal law enforcement on a couple of uh, long-held federal gun right, federal gun laws that are unconstitutional. It's going to take it's going to take more people like that doing things like that. You know what I'm saying that's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take. Now, do you remember one of the situations that led to the Republican winning the gubernatorial election in Virginia? 15-year-old girl raped in the girls' bathroom in a high school in Loudoun County, Virginia, by a boy wearing a skirt. And Loudoun County School Board and school superintendent lied about it, said they didn't, that nothing like that happened. And had the father of the 15-year-old girl arrested for coming to the school board meeting to complain. And the next thing you know, the National School Board Association drafts a letter with the help of some people in the Biden White House urging Attorney General Merrick Garland to treat parents showing up at school board meetings to complain about what's going on in the schools as domestic terrorists and sticking the FBI on them. 
But you remember what started all of that was the alleged rape of the little girl in the bathroom of the high school. Got it? Remember that? Oh, you're not even going to want to. We got an update on that. Sarah Taylor, again, over the blaze. Article entitled, Mom of skirt-wearing male teen who raped female teen in bathroom says son identifies as male and just wanted sex as she berates victim. Quote, you're 15, you can reasonably defend yourself. Unquote. You believe this insanity? The Loudoun County, Virginia mother of the skirt-wearing teen accused of raping a female classmate in a girl's bathroom is speaking out in defense of her son, saying he's not transgender, identifies as male, and simply, quote, wanted sex, unquote. In October, an area judge found the, guilty, found the student guilty of sexually assaulting a female student in a girl's bathroom back in May. The unnamed male student was placed under electronic surveillance over the attack, but was later said to have groped another female teen at a different Loudoun County High School earlier in October. The woman, who remains unnamed at the time of this reporting, told the UK Daily Mail that her 15-year-old son is male and not transgender. She defended her son as simply engaging in the actions of a, quote, heterosexual hormonal teen who, in the case of the rape, had consensual sex with a girl twice before, unquote. Oh, no, she continued, quote, he's a 15-year-old boy that wanted to have sex in the bathroom with somebody that was willing, and they're twisting this just enough to make it a political hot-button issue, unquote. The woman said that her son, who she admits is deeply troubled, was only wearing a skirt that particular day because he has an androgynous style. She explained, quote, he would wear a skirt one day, and then the next day he would wear jeans and a T-shirt, a polo or hoodie. He was trying to find himself, and that involved all kinds of styles. I believe he was doing it because it gave him attention he desperately needed and sought, unquote. The woman added that her son described the sexual assault to her in a way that made her believe the incident was all a misunderstanding. The two, according to the woman, met in the bathroom earlier in the day because the female teen wasn't feeling well that day. His mother recalled he was worried about her, asked her how she was feeling, touched her forehead, brought water for her, and said that her son told her that he and the female teen talked about having sex later on in the day. She continued, he'd mentioned something about hooking up with her, said they'd discussed it that day, and that she was wishy-washy, was like, yeah, maybe I still don't feel well, we'll see. She then said that her son later followed the female teen into the bathroom a second time later in the day, where he ended up advancing on her when she said she was feeling much better than earlier in the morning. According to the male teen's mother, he depicted the rape as an accident and said he didn't mean, whoa, whoa. Okay, this is where it gets graphic, and I just, I just can't. 
He didn't mean to actually do it. She then called in to question the teen girl's response to the incident. She said, if I was in a position where I was about to be raped, I would be screaming, kicking everything. You're 15. You can reasonably defend yourself. You're not just going to sit there and take it. And so because there wasn't a presence of a fight, he felt it was okay to keep going. In later October, the teen was found guilty for the May sexual assault, which took place at Stonebridge High School in Ashburn, Virginia. Well, it sounds like then the jury didn't buy what the mother is selling here, didn't buy what her 15-year-old son is selling. His victim admitted that the two previously had sex in the bathroom and that they had agreed to meet there once more during lunch break. In her testimony, the unnamed female student said she arrived to the bathroom and told him that she no longer wanted to have sex, but he threw her on the floor in response and forced her into sexual activities. He was remanded to juvenile detention pending a November 15th hearing in connection with the second incident, which reportedly took place at Broad Run High School in Ashburn in early October with a different girl. The UK Daily Mail reported that sources stated the 15-year-old has a checkered record when it comes to sexual indiscretions. And in fifth grade, the teen reportedly sent nude photos of himself to a female classroom classmate in, in, in that fifth grade. The girl's parents reportedly agreed not to file charges in exchange for the district keeping the boy away from their daughter. His mother, according to the outlet, confirmed the incident and snapped, what the F does that have to do with anything? She asked, what are they trying to do? Did they hire an investigator to dig up everything and ruin him for the rest of his life? He's been a challenging child his whole life, which I've dealt with myself. Oh, you have. My son's gone through multiple forms of counseling and therapy. Resources here at school, friends, family. It's been 15 years of hell trying to get him to do better and be better. According to the report, the woman still is not sure what to make of the charges in connection to the October 6th incident. She said, I didn't hear my son's side of it because he was being hauled into juvenile detention before I could talk to him. What is the end game on this? My son's going to be on the sexual registry and be committed to Megan's law for the rest of his life because he had 15-year-old hormones. Forgive me if I ask a question. Where's dad? Where's dad? All right. Where is dad? She's been dealing with this herself. Uh, I mean, she's blaming the victim here. Oh, you're 15. You should be able to. Really? She's cool with a 15-year-old son having sex? Where's dad? Where is dad? I mean, I can't think of any particular dad that would want his son doing this kind of stuff. Right? Our culture is in bad shape. Our culture is in bad shape. As is any culture 
that departs from God's word. And that's a deal with that. Now, we're talking about Biden's handlers trying to shove these vaccine mandates down our throats, right? And I just want to be clear about something because, again, I'm looking forward to being on with our brother Dan Bongino tomorrow at the beginning of hour two, 105 Eastern. But um, this um, mask mandate thing, um, pardon me, the, the vaccine mandate that I got fired for, it was announced way before Cumulus's vaccine mandate was announced almost a month before Biden's vaccine mandate. There's really no excuse for the CEO and board of directors of Cumulus to try to be forcing people like me to inject an unknown quantity into my veins. Some kind of gene therapy that's still on trial. An experimental drug? No. No. They never probably Mary Bernard probably never heard of the Nuremberg Code. She probably has no idea what that's all about. I wrote her a letter. And she um welcomed me to get the form to fill out the exemption, but um but they ignored that. Oh, they asked a lot of questions about my uh, religious beliefs and how that affected the way I look at how I live my life and vaccines and stuff. I don't think a cumulus has very good lawyers. But anyway, that's a whole other show. So thank you, Phil Kirpin, to linking to an op-ed over at Newsweek of all places entitled, Why is Biden Mandating Vaccines for Workers Instead of Public Program Participants? And it's written by Casey B. Mulligan and Thomas J. Phillipson. And in case you don't know who these guys are, let me just tell you before we get into it. Um, Mr. Mulligan served as chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors 2018 to 2019. Mr. Phillipson was a member of the council 2017 to 2020 and its acting chair 2019 to 2020. Both are economists at the University of Chicago. All right. So here's what they're saying, and this is fascinating. Last month, the White House began to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for all federal employees as well as for private sector employers with at least 100 people on the payroll. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. All federal employees? No, the CDC, I'm pretty sure their their employees don't have to have the vax. And the U.S. Postal Service, their employees don't have to have the vax. And uh, staffers in the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, they don't have to have the vax. But most federal employees. Anyway, federal contractors and healthcare institutions 
and nursing homes may only employ vaccinated workers regardless of size. But Biden has gotten it backwards. It's not taxpaying workers the president should be forcing to get vaccinated, but rather the people consuming government services. There are a number of reasons for this. For starters, mandating employees means going after businesses, which is a backwards approach given that businesses are more effective at infection control than households are. The evidence clearly shows workplaces spread COVID-19 less than households do, and this is true even in hospitals that treat COVID patients. Data from hospitals, schools, nursing homes, food processing plants, hairstylists, and airlines shows something remarkable. These places all adopted practices to control the spread of COVID-19, practices which were by and large successful. Infection rates in workplaces typically dropped from well above the infection rates of households to well below them, according to all the available research. So why mandate the places that are already good at controlling infections rather than the ones that are bad at it? The public health community often argues that larger crowds and thus larger institutions equal more spread of disease, but larger firms have economies of scale in infection control. By sending people home for refusing the vaccine, you're actually increasing the number of people in the places that are worse at stopping the spread of the virus, which is home. In other words, the mandate replaces effective infection control within the workplace with less effective control outside of it. Moreover, Biden's mandate might increase mortality in another way. It will force healthcare institutions to fire workers who don't want to get vaccinated. This means they'll be losing the caregivers of the most vulnerable, like nursing home staff. This will drive up overall mortality, even if the mandate reduces COVID mortality. Economic research prior to COVID indicates mortality in nursing homes is highly dependent on adequate staffing. Nursing home staff shortages lead to health problems for residents, such as sores, infections, and too often to death. But see, for Joe Biden and his handlers, that's a feature, not a bug. I believe these guys are into population control. I've read so many of these globalists who subscribe to the long-debunked ideas of Thomas Malthus from the 1800s, and they believe that 8 billion people on this old world is way too much. We'd be a lot better off with about 400 million, and they don't care how we get there and how fast we get there, and that's what this is about. It's population control. Anyway, the authors at Newsweek say, Currently, more than a third of nursing home staff are unvaccinated. These people will split into those who get vaccinated and stay at their jobs and those who leave the nursing home industry. Nursing home staffing fell from 2.6 million at the start of the pandemic to 2.2 million now, but September saw a doubling of exits compared to the average monthly loss during this period. Consider even a good case scenario in which the mandate achieves a 95% vaccination rate among nursing home staff. Previous studies of mortality and staffing in nursing homes suggest that losing the other 5% will result in an additional 1,600 resident deaths per month. Because the residents are already vaccinated, 
you would not be saving 1,600 lives in terms of reduced COVID mortality among residents, even if the mandate were able to completely eradicate the virus from all facilities. But instead of listening to the warnings coming from nursing home staff, Dementia Joe seems poised to follow in the footsteps of former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in implementing another deadly and avoidable government failure on COVID nursing home policy. Instead of mandating working taxpayers with the vaccine, Dementia Joe should mandate people who participate in public programs. Eligibility for these benefits currently does not require getting the COVID vaccine, despite the fact many people who receive assistance from the government reside in crowded quarters with larger families, exactly the kinds of environments that are not good at controlling the spread of COVID-19. The vaccine mandate on workers rather than non-workers is a government failure that the private sector will surely attempt to correct as individuals exit the labor force, choose to work in smaller firms, and elect home-based rather than the institutionalized old-age care. When it comes to life and death, governments often enact well-intentioned policies and regulations that aim to increase safety. But whether you agree with those refusing the vaccine or not, forcing it, on workers is counterproductive. Requiring the shot for public program participants would be a better way to slow the spread and damage the economy less. Well, okay, here's the problem. Here's the problem. I get the point that Mr. Mulligan and Mr. Phillipson are making in their Newsweek op-ed, I get the point. But um, I don't think the vaccine should be mandated for anybody because I think it's dangerous. And I think we have one case after another. Uh, I think we have one proof after another, that it's dangerous. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people who trusted what the government told them, right? And then, okay, well, commercial airline pilot. Cody Flint testifying before Congress. What happened after he took the vax? Here it is. Good morning, and thank you, Senator Johnson, for this opportunity. My name is Cody Flint. I am a 33-year-old husband and a father of two young boys. I'm an agricultural pilot by profession with over 10,000 total flight hours. I have been very healthy my whole life with no underlying conditions. I received my first dose of the Pfizer COVID vaccine on February 1st. Within 30 minutes, I developed a severe stabbing headache that later became a burning sensation in the back of my neck. Two days after vaccination, I got, my got in my airplane to do a job that would take only a few hours. Immediately after taking off, I knew something was not right with me. I was starting to develop tunnel vision and my headache was getting worse. Approximately two hours into my flying, I pulled my airplane up to turn around and felt an extreme burst of pressure in my ears. Instantly, I was nearly blacked out, 
dizzy, disoriented, nauseous, and shaking uncontrollably. By the grace of God, I was able to land my plane without incident, although I do not remember doing this. My initial diagnosis of vertigo and a severe panic attack, although I've never had a history of either of these, was later replaced with left and right paralymphatic fistulas, eustachian tube dysfunction, and elevated intracranial pressure due to brain swelling. My condition continued to decline, and my doctors told me only an adverse reaction to the vaccine or a major head trauma could have caused this much spontaneous damage. I've had six spinal taps over eight months to monitor my intracranial pressure and two surgeries eight weeks apart to repair the fistulas. I have missed nearly an entire year of my life and part of my children's lives. Days of baseball games, playing in the backyard, and just picking up my kids to hug them have been replaced with being trapped in a sick body, doctor visits, invasive procedures, and more questions than answers. I don't know if I'll ever be able to fly an airplane again. This vaccine has taken my career from me and the future I have worked so hard to build. I have used all of my savings to pay medical bills and just to be able to survive. My family and I are on the verge of losing everything we have. They're trying to kill you. They're trying to kill you. Now, I would not have been allowed to say this when I was doing local talk radio for a big radio company. But by the grace of God, the Lord put together a team of people um, to support this, this podcast. And they understood that I'm going to speak the truth to the best of my ability, the best I understand it, and they're trying to kill you. There are way, 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 way too many adverse effects from the vaccines reported to the government's own vaccine adverse events reporting system, which is, by the way, not mandatory. It's just voluntary. That was a pilot named Cody Flint who was testifying before Senator Ron Johnson's subcommittee in the U.S. Senate. And there are so many, so many events like this. Um, and so the people who try to tell the truth are persecuted. You know, one of them would be the great Emerald Robinson, White House correspondent for Newsmax. Who's been suspended by Twitter and the Newsmax channel, her, uh, Her employer is even distancing itself from her. Know what I'm saying? 
I mean, we're getting reports that she's been pulled off the air by Newsmax. And this is outrageous. Look, I did uh, live endorsement commercials for Newsmax on my local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas. And sometimes I even got to interview folks from Newsmax. And it was such an honor to have Emerald Robinson on. And back in the spring, she broke a story on my local talk radio show. She said the Biden administration has just shut down the office in Homeland Security. It's supposed to keep track of foreign terrorists. And they're redirecting their efforts to uh, looking into uh, white nationalists in the U.S. I'm like, oh, okay. So I would not have been surprised if we'd had a repeat of 9-11 on 9-11. That was a real concern. Emerald Robinson is a great reporter. And so they can't have that. They can't have that. So let's see what the, uh, the Daily Beast says about Emerald Robinson. Conservative cable network Newsmax has sidelined White House correspondent Emerald Robinson after she made the utterly bonkers claim that COVID-19 vaccines contain a bioluminescent tracker linked to the devil. In a post that has since been taken down by Twitter for peddling COVID-19 misinformation, Robinson warned Christians that the vaccines include a bioluminescent marker called luciferase so that you can be tracked, all while suggesting to her followers that the shot was the mark of the beast, something she has said before. All right. So now let's see what she really said. Let's see what she really said. Look, we, we have to stick together and we have to stand up for each other. Dan Bongino is standing up for me and people like me. I'm going to stand up for uh, not only Brother Bongino, I'm going to stand up for Emil Robinson, who I know to be a, a truthful reporter. This is what she says over Substack. Emerald Robinson. As most of my followers on social media on Substack must know by now, I have spent a considerable amount of time the last two years trying to discover the actual ingredients of the new COVID vaccines. The reason is simple. Big Pharma has gone to considerable trouble to hide them. Do the big pharma companies want to submit the vaccines to independent analysis? They do not. Do the big pharma companies want to disclose all the ingredients? They do not. Do the big pharma companies have any liability for lying to the public about the proprietary agreement, uh, ingredients in their vaccines? They do not. She says, we have a leaked copy of the legal agreement that big pharma companies allegedly have forced nation states to sign in order to get the new COVID vaccines. These contracts include indemnification clauses that no sane human being would ever sign. And she has a copy leaked from Albania. She says, one thing is certain. Big pharma is not standing behind these products. They're totally experimental 
and untested and so forth. So why are the world's governments so hell-bent on injecting their citizens with this stuff? I received a tip regarding some of the ingredients, and so I did what nobody in American corporate journalism does anymore. I checked the primary sources. She says, allow me to share my secret and very profound methodology. Number one, I went to the Moderna website. Number two, I clicked to the patents page. Number three, I found patent US 10,703,789. Number four, I conducted a keyword search for something called luciferase. Such are the complex technical skills which have been lost by corporate journalists. So what did I find there? Well, sitting on page 46 in table four, you will see that I found something called luciferase. And she links to it. She has the screenshot. She says, what is luciferase? It's an enzyme that can produce bioluminescence. It can basically make things glow. That's why luciferase is commonly used in the biomedical industry. It's used to tag very tiny things like cells or proteins so you can track them. It tags things so you can track them. Was luciferase listed as an ingredient in the COVID vaccines by Big Pharma? No, it was not. And she has a link to the CDC website. So the next question becomes, why would Big Pharma not disclose that luciferase is an ingredient in the vaccine since it's clearly listed and at least one patent from one company is being used? The reason is rather ominous. Big Pharma has big plans for luciferase, and big government has big plans for it too. U.S. military's technology arm, DARPA, is currently fighting with Moderna over the ownership of the COVID vaccine because DARPA has funded an implantable biochip that could be used to deploy it. <clears throat> Despite this, however, one obstacle to the deployment of Moderna's vaccine is a method of delivery. While Moderna is developing its own system, it's unlikely to get FDA approval anytime soon. Enter Profusa. Enter Profusa, which is developing a nanoscale, a nanoscale biochip that can detect symptoms of an infection. Profusa's biochip is made using a technology called hydrogel, hydrogels that were a product of the in vivo nanoplatforms program that DARPA's Biological Technologies Office launched in 2014 to develop implantable nanotechnologies. These hydrogels are soft, flexible nanomachines that are injected beneath the skin to per perform monitoring. This hydrogel includes a specially engineered molecule that sends a fluorescent signal outside the body when it begins to fight infection. This signal can then be detected by a sensor attached to the skin that can be sent to an app or even a doctor's website. Why is the U.S. military working with vaccine companies to create microchips, that's hydrogels or nanotech, that will send a fluorescent signal, that's luciferase, detectable by an app on your smartphone? When did DARPA get involved in public health policy exactly? That strange question leads to other strange questions like, why did the Pentagon fund the Wuhan 
the Wuhan lab of virology to study weaponizing bad coronaviruses? Neither DARPA nor the Pentagon are well known for being leaders in healthcare, to say the very least. In fact, big pharma and big government have big plans for future vaccine shots that have dissolvable needles and quantum dot tattoos. She links to all this stuff, by the way. Along with other amazing technology like embedding vaccine records beneath the skin of your children with invisible ink. According to one article, along with the vaccine, a child would be injected with a bit of dye that is invisible to the naked eye, but easily seen with a special cell phone filter combined with an app that shines near-infrared light onto the skin. That article was written in 2019. That's just before the COVID crisis. This leads me to another thought. COVID-19 seems to be a very convenient accidental lab leak from China for introducing new technology. Under the cover of vaccinating people, we're really preparing to tag and track people. The once free nations of the West are testing a new authoritarian system of total control under the guise of public health. Just look at Australia or New Zealand or Canada or Italy to see how basic civil rights have been suspended indefinitely and a pseudo-medical tyranny has been installed. The Great Reset is being implemented with the lie that it's all about protecting your health. Our military and intelligence agencies are not confronting China. They're copying China. A totalitarian nightmare is being imported into free countries through surveillance technologies. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that such technology will be used to build a global surveillance state. The vaccine mandates have already led to vaccine passports. The vaccine passports are basically QR codes to track you by connecting to your smartphone. This will inevitably lead very soon to biometric ID embedded into your body. You won't be able to enter restaurants or buy groceries or go to work without it. As the Bible says, no one will be able to buy or sell anything except those that have the mark. Yikes. Wow, she went there. Check it out. She says, you will know the mark by its name, which is the name of the beast, the enemy of all mankind who before he fell was an angel of light named Lucifer. That's why Lucifer race, this substance, should send a chill down your spine. She says, so I sent out the following tweet to my followers with a video showing the, the Luciferase patent information early this week. And the tweet said, Dear Christians, the vaccines contain a bioluminescent marker called Luciferase so that you can be tracked. Read the last book of the New Testament to see how this ends. She says, this one tweet was sufficient, apparently, to get the word Luciferase trending on Twitter. She said, I didn't notice at the time... <clears throat> Because, uh, because I was busy covering the Glenn Youngkin victory on election night. It was not until the next day that it became clear this one tweet had stirred up all the big pharma bots working remotely from Beijing. The largest producer of misinformation in America, the Washington Post, ran a piece on my tweet where I was branded a COVID conspiracy theorist. The Daily Beast ran a piece and then ran a second piece. Something called The Hill ran a piece. The forgotten boomer finance magazine, Forbes, got involved. Vanity Fair, the perfume ad magazine, did a little column on it. Then it became an international thing with The Independent and The Daily Mail chiming in. And she has a screenshot of The Daily Mail, UK Daily Mail, saying Newsmax White House correspondent suspended from Twitter 
after she claimed COVID vaccines have satanic trackers called Luciferase and told her followers to read the New Testament, see how it ends. She says, now you have to ask yourself, are my tweets about vaccine ingredients really making headline news around the world? She said, I checked with my husband first to see if I was indeed that famous. His response was disappointing. He told me, at best, you're semi-famous. When corporate media outlets around the English-speaking world all start to scream in such coordinated fashion, you know you've hit a nerve. Why would they suddenly go crazy over the COVID vaccine ingredients? It's because big journalism is being paid by Big Pharma to not disclose the truth. In fact, Big Pharma is paying big journalism to actively hide the truth around the world. Why do you think the COVID journalist Alex Berenson got kicked off Twitter? Why did the corporate media unleash a hate campaign against feminist icon Naomi Wolf? Why isn't former Pfizer chief scientist Dr. Michael Yeadon allowed to speak? How is it possible that the inventor of the mRNA vaccines himself, Dr. Robert Malone, is not a household name around the world? You know the answer. They've all warned us about the dangers of the new COVID vaccines. They've been silenced by big tech and big pharma because they have all dared to tell the truth. They're not alone. How many thousands have been banned or suspended already by big tech for questioning the COVID vaccines in our supposedly free nation? How many of your civil rights, your constitutional rights, can they trample before your very eyes? America is no longer a constitutional republic. It's more like a corporate oligarchy where big pharma and big tech and big government tell you every day what you're allowed to do on Zoom calls from the CDC with Dr. Fauci. They're not even pretending anymore. This is something like day, day 575 of 15 days to slow the spread. Our so-called civil servants and elected officials are never going to give up their new so-called emergency powers on their own. They mean to rule over us, and everybody knows it. That's why the COVID-19 pandemic is being used to force everyone to get the new vaccines. That's why natural immunity doesn't count to anyone in the medical community. That's why religious exemptions have disappeared at your work along with medical exemptions. That's why ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and every other therapeutic drug were swiftly outlawed. That's why your five-year-old child will be encouraged and then coerced and then forced to take the jab just as you were encouraged and then coerced and then forced to take the jab. That's why the global vaccination campaign never stops when the already vaccinated start to get sick with COVID or young boys suddenly die from heart inflammation or world-famous soccer players collapse on TV in the middle of games. That's why health data, whether from Israel or Sweden or Florida or your local hospital, is totally irrelevant. The vaccine is being forced on everyone because the vaccine and the vaccine passport are the essential tools of a global surveillance system that will end everyone's basic human freedom. You have been warned. That's Emerald Robinson from her, from her substack. Emerald Robinson's the right way, and I will do my best to post it on my Facebook page. And, you know, see if I get suspended again. By the way, before I get out of here, before I get out of here, I have to share with you about critical race theory from an administrator for the largest school district in Indiana. 
and this one blew my mind. It's about a minute, a minute and a half long. Tony Kensett, who is administrator for the largest school district in Indiana, and here's what he said. I'm the science coach and admin in the largest public school district in Indiana. I'm in dozens of classrooms a week, so I see exactly what we're teaching our students. When we tell you that schools aren't teaching critical race theory, that it's nowhere in our standards, that's misdirection. We don't have the quotes and theories as state standards per se. We do have critical race theory in how we teach. We tell our teachers to treat students differently based on color. We tell our students that every problem is a result of white men and that everything Western civilization built is racist. Capitalism as a tool of white supremacy. Those are straight out of Kimberly Crenshaw's main points, verbatim in critical race theory, the writings that formed the movement. This is in math, history, science, English, the arts, and it's not slowing down. If students of color have lower reading scores, it's because of inequity. Therefore, we take from the white students and give to the color students. That's Richard Delgado, straight out of CRT and introduction. All teaching is political, with reality and facts taking the back seat. That's Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, who outlined how she saw critical race theory flushed out in public schools in 1995. When schools tell you that we aren't teaching critical race theory, it means one thing. Go away and look into our affairs no further. It isn't about transparency. It isn't about cultural relevance. It's race essentialism painted to look like the district cares about students of color. We call it anti-racism, so you feel bad if you disagree with our segregationist pedagogy. It's taking advantage of kids' vulnerability and parents' inactivity to preen over social snake oil schemes designed to create division. Parents, when we tell you critical race theory isn't taught in our schools, we're lying. Keep looking. It's amazing. Tony Kennett, administrator in one of the largest school districts in Indiana, telling you the truth about what's really going on. I'm the same coach. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to start it again. And that's what we're trying to do here at the Doc Washburn Show. Tell you the truth about what's really going on day after day as long as God allows us to have this platform. Now, we were over an hour and a half late getting started today because of power outage. We're, uh, God willing, going to get a uh, generator. But this has been episode number 18, November 4th, 2021 of the Doc Washburn Show. We appreciate you guys. God bless you. And God willing, we look forward to speaking with you again tomorrow at noon Eastern, 11 Central. And look forward to being on the Dan Bongino Radio Show at 105 Eastern, 1205 Central, tomorrow, Friday, November 5th. God bless you. See you then.